thanks so much. Thanks everybody for joining us today. Uh, the topic is taxes for tax exempt organizations, which sounds like it really shouldn't last very long, right? <laughs> tax exempt organizations, aren't they not subject to tax in the first instance? Well, we have uh, a bunch of materials for you today to talk about those taxes that actually do apply to tax exempt organizations. So I'm gonna share my screen so that you all can see the slides. Uh, Barbara Hunt and I are delighted to be here to, uh, to talk with you today. We have done this presentation together quite a number of times. Uh, Barbara has practiced in the tax-exempt organization area for, for a number of years, and now she has her own practice advising tax-exempt organizations. And I am a partner at Robes and Gray in the tax group. So as I mentioned, we'll be talking about all of those things that apply to tax-exempt organizations uh, in terms of what taxes they actually are subject to. So I am going to cover the federal tax side and Barbara is going to cover the state tax side. So we're going to talk uh, on the federal side about the unrelated business income tax. Barbara will talk about the Massachusetts uh, unrelated business income tax. She will discuss property taxes and sales taxes. And then we'll wrap up with a couple of excise taxes that apply on the federal side, the intermediate sanctions rules and the executive compensation excise tax. There are some regimes we're not going to cover today that do apply to tax exempt organizations like payroll taxes and the special excise tax regime that applies to private foundations that is the subject of another fundamentals series. Uh, and we're not going to cover the endowment tax, which is a special tax that applies to certain private colleges and universities. But other than that, we're gonna, we're gonna cover it all. We've got a lot to cover in an hour. So please view this as a, a high level overview. We've got a lot of content, but the, the intention is really for this to be an overview. So let's dive right in with the unrelated business income tax. You may have heard this referred to as UBIT or UBTI. So a key requirement for 501c3 status, where status is a tax-exempt charitable organization, is that the organization needs to be organized and operated exclusively for tax-exempt purposes. So this is educational, charitable, religious, those types of things. But the IRS actually interprets the term exclusively to mean primarily. So that means some amount of activity that isn't this core tax exempt function is actually tolerated. And that's called unrelated business activity. And if an organization engages in too much unrelated business activity, it can lose its tax exempt status because it wouldn't be able to be operated primarily for tax exempt purposes uh, anymore. We don't know what the trigger for that is. It's a facts and circumstances test. The IRS says there's no numerical limit or percentage limit on unrelated business activity. It's kind of, we know it when we see it. But short of losing tax exemption, if an organization engages in unrelated business activities, this can result in income tax. And that's the unrelated business income tax. So. This, this tax is, implied, is applied on unrelated business taxable income, otherwise known as UBTI, which is your gross unrelated income minus any deductions or losses uh, directly connected with carrying on a trade or business. 
Now you may have heard about a silo rule or sometimes referred to as a basket rule that was enacted a couple of years ago, which basically says that uh, you need to compute your unrelated trader business income uh, separately with respect to each unrelated trader business in which you engage. Now, this is a departure from the old law, which permitted an organization to essentially incur a bunch of losses in connection with one unrelated trader business and use those to offset gains from a completely different unrelated trader business. You cannot do that anymore. And there are very specific rules about how to engage in this siloing. And Barbara will also discuss when she gets into mass taxes, how those rules are applied in the Massachusetts context, since it also has an unrelated business income tax. So if an organization is subject to this tax, it's applied at the regular corporate tax rate if the entity is a corporation, or if the organization is formed as a trust, it's imposed at the trust rates. And so why does this rule even exist? Well, the origin of it is really the concept of preventing unfair competition. So putting tax-exempt organizations and for-profit uh, corporations on an equal footing when it comes to engaging in business activities. And there was a situation many years ago that led to the, in, the enactment of, of the unrelated business income tax, which was NYU Law School, I believe received a donation of the entirety of the Mueller Macaroni Company. So NYU Law School was going around making pasta and not paying any taxes on the profits and that led to an outcry and the enactment of the unrelated business income tax. So what do you need to have in order to be subject to this tax? Well, you need to have a trader business. It needs to be regularly carried on and it cannot be substantially related to the organization's tax exempt purposes. So we'll break that down a little bit. So first of all, trader business, what does that mean? Generally, it means do you have a profit motive with respect to carrying on this activity? Um, if there are persistent losses, for example, that generally suggests there is no profit motive, but profit motive is really what the IRS looks at in determining whether you have a trader business. Is it regularly carried on, the second element? So if it's an occasional activity, something really intermittent, that's not considered regularly carried on. So you're looking for conduct that is continuous. The real meat of it comes in this last factor, which is, is the activity substantially related to tax exempt purposes? Because there are some there are business type activities that may be related to an organization's tax exempt purposes. So in order to show an activity is substantially related, so not an unrelated trader business, there needs to be a causal relationship between the business activity and the actual accomplishment of tax exempt purposes. Very importantly, using the money from the business activity to further the tax exempt purposes, so pouring the profits back into the tax exempt organization so it can do great charitable things, that's not considered substantially related. The activity itself actually has to further tax exempt purposes. Now this fragmentation principle is basically stands for the proposition that you could have sort of a, a large, a panoply of business activities, all that are sort of similar 
And some of them may be unrelated and some of them may be related. So you might have tax to be paid on some, but not on the, on the others. So an example would be if an organization has a journal that is an educational journal, it has subscriptions, it gets subscription revenue that is clearly furthering tax exempt purposes to put out an educational journal. But if the organization is selling advertising in the journal, advertising is considered an unrelated trade or business activity, and that piece is fragmented out and would be subject to the unrelated business income tax. Now, this is an area where there are tons of exceptions. Uh, there, here are a few key ones. Volunteer exception, if you're selling goods and everyone who is doing the selling is a volunteer, that is not considered an unrelated trader business. Convenience exception, this comes up a lot in the hospital and university context. If an activity is being carried out primarily for the convenience of an organization's members, students, patients, officers, or employees, that is not considered an unrelated trader business. So the hospital cafeteria would be you know, a very, important and um, example of this. Also, there's a thrift shop exception, which is basically if you are selling goods uh, that are donated, that is not considered an unrelated trader business. Now, in addition to sort of exceptions to the concept of unrelated trader business, there are also a set of it's exclusions from unrelated business taxable income. So this is a little bit different. It's not that the activity itself is not considered to be an unrelated trader business, but it's that the income, specific categories of income are just not considered to be UBTI, so not taxable. And this is a very big exception for investments of tax exempt organizations. So many types of passive investment income are just excluded from UBTI. This includes dividends, interests, royalties, rents, annuities, capital gains, whether long-term or short-term. So that's a very big exclusion for a lot of organizations that engage in investment activity. Inventory, however, you need to be careful about. That is, sales of inventory are subject to UBTI. Now, this slide is meant to be just sort of a file this away in the back of your mind. Um, if you hear of any organization you are working with doing any of these things, you may think back to, I went to that BBA program on a Friday afternoon. Uh, is there something about that that I remember that makes me say UBTI flag? This is, this is the slide to remember. So debt financed income. If a tax exempt organization engages in borrowing, this will often result in UBTI. It's a it's one of those, you know, putting the for profits and the nonprofits on an equal footing concept again. If an organization borrows, it is going to mo in most cases generate UBTI. There are some exceptions to these rules, including specifically for universities that are borrowing to acquire real estate. Another thing to remember, joint ventures. So if an organization you're representing is engaging in a joint venture through a partnership or an LLC with a for-profit party, 
that is the type of activity that can generate UBTI because it's investing in a pass-through vehicle for tax purposes. If that, that vehicle is actually engaging in a trader business that is not substantially related to your tax-exempt organization partners' uh, activities, tax-exempt activities, that can result in UBTI. There are some rulings around this as well that are cited here on the slide. S-corporations. This is one of those sort of hard and fast rules. If a tax-exempt organization holds an interest in an S-corporation, the income from that S-corporation investment is UBTI to the tax-exempt investor. And if the tax-exempt investor sells the S-corporation shares, that also results in UBTI. Now, I had mentioned a moment ago that many types of investment income are excluded from UBTI. There is an exception to this exclusion, which is interest annuities, royalties and rents received from entities that are controlled by the tax exempt organization. So more than 50% controlled will often result in UBTI due to just a special tax rule that exists uh, that creates UBTI under those circumstances. And another area that we see um, from time to time is rent. So rents are usually excluded from UBTI but if substantial services are provided by the tax exempt organization in connection with the leasing of the property, so this is like concierge type services, that disqualifies the rent as passive income and will result in UBTI. So what do you do if you've got it? If you have UBTI and you need to pay tax on it, uh, any organization that has gross income of $1,000 or more from unrelated business activities does need to file uh, Form 990-T with the IRS. Uh, this is a publicly available form like the Form 990, which is the big information return that organ exempt organizations file. Uh, one thing just to be aware of is while it's publicly available, all of the schedules are not required to be made public. So if you're working with an organization that gets a request for its 990-T, this is one of those areas where you, you want to check the schedules and see what actually needs to be provided because there's often quite a bit of sensitive information that can be attached to the 990T, especially as it relates to the organization's investments. And a lot of those attachments don't necessarily need to be uh, made available to the general public on request. So that is our very high level overview of federal UBTI and I will turn it over to Barbara to start on our mass discussion. Hello, good afternoon. Um, Kendi has covered the federal and tax exempt organizations are taxable on their unrelated business taxable income at a state level in most states, not all, but most states. We're gonna focus here on Massachusetts because that's where we're located but you will find that if you have an organization with investments and those investments have uh, income sourced to other states, you may be filing a very large number of state UBIT returns. So in Massachusetts, the threshold for filing is just like it is for the 990T. Uh, Kendi mentioned the silo issue and Massachusetts is not completely up to speed on this yet, the instructions conflict with what the 990T is doing. It used to be that when you prepared your federal 990T, 
um, you prepared all of the different uh, income streams and then they all rolled up into a summary on the return itself. The format has changed a couple of times in recent years, but the current format basically has the first page as a lead sheet and then you have a Schedule A and on Schedule A you present each separate um, trade or business and those trades or businesses are defined as broadly as you can fit within a two-digit NAICS code. Uh, but what you're doing on the lead sheet on the, on the return is you're taking uh, any positive bottom line numbers, adding them up together to the total that appears uh, on the first page of the 990T. And then for any of those um, schedules, if you got a loss, then you're, you're, you're carrying forward that loss to be used against that particular silo in future years. Well, the instructions right now in Massachusetts say, look at your Schedule A. Well, on any given uh, 990T, you probably have a number of Schedules A. So the sensible thing to do is use the aggregate total of your federal income, even though that's different from what the instructions require right now, because the way the Massachusetts tax works, you start with your federal taxable income and then there are adjustments to get to your Massachusetts income. So let's step back for just a moment and say, you know, what exactly is going to be subject to taxation in Massachusetts as opposed to a different state? Your operational uh, UB uh, that occurs in Massachusetts obviously has a nexus to Massachusetts and that is going to be taxable. You also have investments and any investments where the income is apportioned or allocated to Massachusetts uh, is also going to go into your Massachusetts tax return. Obviously, just with an, as with the 990T, you're offsetting that with direct ex and allocable expenses and you're offsetting by business credits. Um, Massachusetts has something called a throwback rule, which tends to kick in mostly for the investments. Um, what happens as you file a number of different state returns is that each state has its own sourcing rules. And so you determine what's reportable in that state under that state's own rules. When you add up all of the state income, usually you end up with a number that's smaller than your total federal income. That difference is thrown back into Massachusetts. So for a Massachusetts entity, it's total reportable uh, state UB will end up equaling the federal UB because the throwback rule will move whatever the difference is back into Massachusetts. Um, as with most tax returns, we're in a chapter of history where electronic payment is required uh, for pretty much all entities because the gross income only has to be $5,000 for electronic payment to be required. Um, and e-filing is required for larger organizations. There's a $100,000 threshold, but we're moving towards electronic filing. The tax rate's 8%. Um, there is a, a state level NOL carryover, um, not so for capital losses. Uh, what happens with uh, corporations is they have rolling adoption of, of federal changes to the tax laws, uh, subject to specific carve outs that Massachusetts makes distinct from individual taxes where there's a different process. Um, next slide, Candy. You have to file your tax returns and the due date is uh, dependent on the nature of the entity you have. An awful lot of exempt organizations are corporations, in which case the due date is the um, 
25th day of the fourth month, there is an extension. Uh, a lot of organizations uh, take advantage of that extension. Uh, and if you happen to have an S corporation, which is extremely rare in my experience, you have a different filing date. The, um, extension payments are, are required. Now here, there's a disconnect. Uh, the way the extension payment form is set up, it, it treats it as though there's a minimum tax for exempt orgs. But if you look at the tax return itself, there is no minimum tax. So uh, just be aware of the fact that you might have to make extension payments. And if you expect to owe uh, an amount in excess of 1,000, you will have quarterly estimated tax payments to uh, make as well. Next slide, please. There are a couple of COVID provisions that you might want to focus on, and uh, they will expire 90 days after the uh, emergency is no longer in place in Massachusetts. But it relates to the fact that employees are working remotely. In order to be obligated to file a Massachusetts um, state return, they look at all the factors to determine if you have nexus. So if we're dealing with an organization that primarily does business in other states and happens to have employees working remotely in Massachusetts under the uh, uh, pandemic rules, um, that doesn't create nexus alone. They're going to look at all the other factors, but that alone will not create nexus. On the other hand, if you have a Massachusetts corporation and you have employees working remotely outside of Massachusetts, Massachusetts continues to treat all of the income paid to them as Massachusetts source income for payroll withholding and uh, personal income tax purposes. So Massachusetts is sort of uh, uh, having their cake and eating it too on this particular uh, rule and New Hampshire is not very happy about that. Next slide, please. Some organizations are set up as trusts. Sometimes this is more common with private foundations, but anything can be set up as a, a charitable trust. If the trust is a pension, profit-sharing, stock bonus, or IRA, those are specifically carved out under ERISA preemption. They're not subject to unrelated business taxable income. And this is a meaningful exclusion because an awful lot of investments are done through retirement plans. And so all of that taxable income is, uh, is calculated for federal purposes, but there's no equivalent uh, tax return or uh, tax obligation in Massachusetts. So that's an important exception. If you have a trust that is not a retirement plan, essentially, um, then there's another form, your M990T62, that you file for the trust. And as with other um, kinds of uh, tax issues, a trust is a lot more like a, an individual uh, when you start looking at what they're subject to for tax purposes. The tax rate is a trust tax rate. It is not a corporate tax rate, even though we're talking about an analogous concept of unrelated business taxable income. And as with a lot of trusts, your charitable amounts reduce your taxable income. Um, if you're backed looking at a, a, a corporation, corporations on their federal return can deduct up to 10% of their um, income as a charitable contribution deduction. But with trust, you don't have that limitation. So if you're minding uh, the store, you basically can run your taxable income down to zero and not really be paying anything as long as those amounts are being handled appropriately. 
Um, estimated tax payments are due for trust as well if you think you're going to own anything. Next slide, please. Uh, we have LLCs, and for federal purposes, an LLC is a pass-through entity unless it's elected federally to be treated as a corporation. If it files an exemption application on a Form 1023, it has made a deemed election to be treated as a corporation, and so your tax reporting obligations will flow as though it's a corporation. If you have a genuine LLC that is a pass-through entity, what tends to happen in the UBIT area is everything rolls up onto the parent's return. Um, and so there is this ambiguous uh, regulation that doesn't have much impact in real life. Next slide, please. Um, with respect to an LLC, um, your, your charitable amounts or LLC or an uh, exempt unincorporated association um, your charitable amounts reduce your taxable income just like they would for a trust. Um, the reduction also occurs if they're permanently set aside for charitable purposes. You don't actually have to spend it. You just have to lock up the funds in a, in a manner that guarantees they'll be spent on charitable purposes. Again, estimated tax payments for unincorporated associations. Next slide. A very important tax uh, benefit associated with an exemption is a property tax exemption. These are handled separately uh, by each city and town in which the property is located. There's not a statewide exemption. They're based on statutory categories. Those are similar to, but not identical to the federal tax exempt categories. You have to take a look at the actual statute that I've cited here, section five, to see which of the statutory categories your organization will fit into to determine whether or not you have a property tax exemption. Um, the choice of entity matters here because property tax exemptions are available for corporations and charitable trusts, but not LLCs or unincorporated organizations. This is different from New York, which is, has made new rules for LLCs. But, for good and sufficient reasons, um, LLCs often are the recipients of real property, and that's to create lots of protection from liability. On the other hand, if you are going to lose the property tax exemption by dropping it into an LLC, that should be considered in the calculation. So, for example, you might think it's sensible to put a property that's used for commercial purposes down in the LLC for liability protection but you might choose not to put a building used in furtherance of exempt purposes down into the LLC because you'll lose the property tax exemption. Next slide, please. How do you get an exemption? Um, initially, you uh, apply to the Board of Assessors for the particular um, city or town. There's a Form 1B3. Uh, I'm going to focus on Boston because that's where we are right now, but uh, take a look at the process for each city and town that you care about. Um, there's a preliminary consideration form where you're applying almost a year in advance. You have to put your application in by August 1 um, and then go ahead and file your Form 3ABC uh, in the spring by March 1 in order to be considered for an exemption starting July 1. There's a standard abatement procedure in which you put in your application during January. 
uh, go ahead and file your 3ABC in the hopes that you will have an exemption in place by July 1. So there's two different windows to take care of this. Uh, you have to establish that you're eligible for a property tax exemption and fit into one of the statutory categories that usually means you're attaching government, governing documents, your officers, directors, trustees, you're describing your charitable activities and what uses you will make of the property. Next slide, please. Uh, there are two factors that are important in determining your property tax exemption. And here we care about two different dates, January 1 and July 1. The property must be owned by an entity that is eligible for a property tax exemption. And we look at the qualifying owner on January 1 and July 1. It must also have a qualifying use, and that's only July 1. So what is a charity for this purpose? Um, there are some uh, general categories where you have a corporation or trust established for literary, benevolent, charitable, scientific, or temperance purposes. Uh, but there's a balancing act because it's a facts and circumstances analysis. So if you are looking at something like a school or a healthcare entity where you say, yes, that's sort of a, a clear category of entity that is eligible for property tax exemption, then you don't need to look as thoroughly at the following factors. But if you have something that's not a school and that's not a hospital, you might have to look at the following. Um, whether or not the organization is providing uh, services to the poor, low cost or free services to those unable to pay, whether it offers services to a large or fluid group of beneficiaries, which is to say you have a very large charitable class. You're not just providing the benefit to a few people. It serves all segments of society. Um, and if the services are limited, is that necessary in order for the organization to further its charitable purposes? And we'll look at a case where that is important in, in just a, a couple of slides. So the dominant purpose of the organization must be to benefit the broader public and not just a limited number of people. If you're benefiting a very limited number of people, then there will be no property tax exemption available. Next slide, please. Um, this is an example of um, where this weighing and balancing uh, occurred, and the case is new habitat. And basically, it, it stated that the, the closer that the organization's dominance and purposes and methods are to traditionally charitable purposes and methods, the less significant these factors I just went through will be an interpretation of the organization's charitable status for purposes of the property tax exemption. So if you're putting together a, a request for a property tax exemption, this is something that's helpful to, to quote, but it basically describes the weighing and balancing. Next slide, please. What is traditionally charitable? It benefits the public good and not merely its own members. And it goes through the categories you would expect to see, educational, religious, healthcare, um, assisting individuals to establish themselves in life, um, matters retaining to public buildings or works, or lessening the burdens of government. That's a nice category. A lot of different things can be fit into that. 
And the further away you get from these traditionally charitable purposes, the heavier the emphasis is on the factors I described a moment ago. Next slide, please. Here we have a conservation organization. And a conservation organization is dealing obviously with open land. And so you might say, well, how could that qualify for a property tax exemption? And here's the way the analysis has run in New England Forestry Foundation against Board of Assessors at the town of Holly. The prong that they used was uh, lessens the burdens of government and uh, the benefits of the general public of keeping this land open and um, in, in, a, in good shape is to protect wildlife habitats, to filter the air and water supply, absorbing carbon emissions, um, and promoting longevity of the forest by sustainable harvests. Um, one fact that you'll recall when I started on the property tax exemption um, topic is that it must actually be used in furtherance of the charitable activities. It must be used by the charities. So the question is, how do you use or occupy empty property that's there for conservation purposes? Um, and what they, they said in the case is for conservation land, it means either not excluding the public or excluding the public in a limited manner in furtherance of exempt purposes. For example, you can have designated paths and fences and you can limit the number of people and the hours that they can come through and tell them where they can walk because otherwise you've sort of undermined your charitable purposes. So you can, you can limit it if it makes sense in light of your charitable purposes. Next slide, please. So if you get a, a property tax exemption, the question is what is exempt? All the personal property owned by the organization regardless of use and the real property that is owned by the charity and actually used for charitable purposes. So just as, you know, Kendi described under you, but you've got a fragmentation rule where you can have sort of a single a concept and you divide it between the exempt and the taxable pieces, you do the same thing with real property. Uh, real estate uh, that is occupied by the organization or its officers for charitable purposes or is occupied by another charity or its officers for its charitable purposes can be exempt. If you have property where the charity owns it and is the lessor, the lessor bears the burden of proving that the lessee charity qualifies for the exemption. So the landlord has to go for the property tax exemption. Uh, where a portion of the property is used for charitable purposes and a portion is used for UB generating activities, the use is apportioned, portion giving rise to taxable income is subject to property tax. So for example, if you're down in the medical area and you see a hospital and on the first floor facing the street, you have a certain amount of retail space that is leased. That retail space is not eligible for a property tax exemption, but the hospital obviously is. Next slide, please. There is a special rule that allows a charity to purchase property with the intent of placing it in service for charitable purposes within two years. For example, you buy property and it's going to be under construction for some period of time before you can place it in use. As long as you place it in use for charitable purposes within two years, you can get your property tax exemption upfront. 
If you don't use it within two years for charitable purposes, it becomes taxable until put to the charitable use. So it's a, you get one bite at the apple. Um, property that is owned by a charity that's leased to individuals or non-charitable entities or is used for non-charitable purposes is taxable. Um, property owned by a taxable individual or entity and leased to and occupied by a charity is taxable. So you need both pieces. Next slide, please. With religious organizations, the house of worship and the parsonage are automatically exempt, but other property that is owned by the religious organization is not, unless you get a separate exemption. For example, the social hall uh, associated with the house of worship is going to be taxable property. Um, if it has a school associated with it, that school may qualify for its own a standalone uh, exemption and has to apply for that. Uh, religious organizations are not required to file an application to establish exemption for house of worship, but if somebody makes a mistake and sends a property tax bill, um, you can go ahead and, and apply in order to establish the exemption and abate the tax. Slide, please. How do you maintain your property tax exemption? The Form 3ABC is very important. It must be filed by March 1st with the local board of assessors um, for each property owned on January 1. And the March 1 is the date it was received. So not mailing date received. You actually have to deliver to every city and town in which your organization owned property on January 1. Along with your 3ABC, you have to attach the federal return. Now, the problem is you have to do this by March 1. And for most organizations, those returns are due after March 1. So usually what people do is attach the most recently filed return and say in the cover letter, we will send you the most uh, recent tax return um, as soon as it's filed. And, and cities and towns are used to that. So it's an easy solution. Next slide, please. Key dates, January 1, the date you own the property. February 1, if you're going for an exemption for new property under an abatement procedure, that's your deadline. March 1, deadline for your Form 3ABC, and July 1 is the first day of a property tax fiscal year and the date on which the actual use of the property must be exempt to have a property tax exemption. Next slide, please. Pilot payments, payments in lieu of taxes. Payments in lieu of taxes are not technically taxes, but they are negotiated payments uh, with the city and town. They are intended for large organizations. Boston's recommended threshold is 15 million and assessed real property value. Um, so this is not something that small nonprofits generally have to deal with. The payments provide funding to the city or town to support services that would otherwise have been funded through property taxes. Boston collected more than 34 million in fiscal 2020 in the cash contribution portion alone. Um, the pilot payment guideline in Boston is 25% of the property tax that would otherwise be due and up to half of that can include community benefits. So generally, if you look at a pilot payment agreement, there's a cash piece and there's a community benefit piece, and both are valuable to the city or town that has negotiated those. 
sales tax. Sales tax is an important exemption. Sales tax applies to purchases by charities. It does not have anything to do with sales by charities. So, uh, if a charity sells something, it has an obligation to collect and remit sales tax uh, unless there is a specific exemption from sales tax. So we're talking about a purchase exemption. There's a, an Administrative Procedure 101 that's updated annually. So if you have to deal with this, you can find that on the DR website. The site is there. Next slide, please. For exam purposes, um, this exemption is basically available only for 501c3s, for corporations, foundations, organizations, or institutions exempt under 501c3. It's not available to social welfare organizations, social clubs, or trade associations, or any other exemptions that you would otherwise find under federal uh, 501c3. Next slide, please. What are the requirements for the exemption? Um, the property or service must be used in the conduct, conduct of the organization's charitable purpose. Um, the organization um, will obtain the exemption form ST2 and it will submit an ST2 and an ST5 to the vendor in order for the vendor to respect the sales tax exemption and the vendor will keep a record of the sale. Next slide, please. You obtain your sales tax exemption, your ST2 online. Uh, there's a, a form number that's associated with that. You have to uh, provide the DOR with your IRS determination letter. If you've applied but do not yet have an IRS determination letter, you can get an interim sales tax exemption certificate that's available. It's valid for 10 years and it'll be renewed approximately 30 days prior to its expiration. Next slide, please. If you have another, um, an outside, uh, organization or, or say a contractor purchasing on behalf of the charity, uh, the sales tax exemption is still valid as long as the contractor presents the ST2 and the ST5 and whatever they're buying is actually going to be used in furtherance of the exempt purposes. Next slide, please. With respect to sales by charities, um, Recall that uh, sales tax is a trustee tax, so your responsible officers of the charity will be personally liable if the sales tax is not collected and paid. If you are sending goods into another state after the Wayfair case, you need to look into what the sales tax rules are in the destination state and see whether you are responsible for collecting and remitting sales tax under the rules for that state, not Massachusetts, for the destination state. Next slide, please. There are certain exemptions um, to sales tax, uh, sales of clothing uh, up to 175, tickets for admission, publications, casual and isolated sales. And we're gonna focus on this last one because it is useful to exempt organizations for fundraising events. Next slide, please. The sales uh, 
for fundraising purposes are exempt from sales tax as casual and isolated sales if the organization does not make sales in the regular course of business of the same kind of property and if the amounts derived from casual and isolated sales are used to further the organization's exempt purposes. We're going to presume that that second bullet is satisfied for any fundraising event for a particular organization. So the, the, the discussion ends up being on the first one, um, whether the sale of property occurs in the regular course of business. And we're going to look at the facts and circumstances. Next slide, please. First of all, does the organization conduct sales from a retail establishment that it operates? If you have an ongoing gift shop and oh, by the way, you sell the same things when you're at a fundraising event, it's, it's not a casual and isolated sale. It's subject to the usual rules. Does the organization have to hold a vendor registration certificate in order to sell this? That's going to make it look like it's not casual and isolated whether the proceeds constitute unrelated business taxable income. If it, if it gets over the threshold and it's considered taxable income, you're not really going to get out of collecting or remitting sales tax. Next slide, please. Charity auctions. Sales uh, that are made at a charity auction are exempt from sales tax so long as the sales are considered casual and isolated and the charity does not make sales of similar property in the regular course of business. Uh, the appellate tax board found that two auctions a year are good. So if you get up to three or four, then you're going to have to sit down and decide whether you can make an argument that these are still casual and isolated. So the first two are, are okay. After that, you're really gonna have to sit down and look at what you're doing. Um, next slide, please. So now we go back to the federal side. Um, so we'll wrap up with a discussion of a couple of excise taxes that apply to tax exempt organizations. Um, these are probably the two that come up most commonly uh, for 501c3 organizations. The first one is uh, the intermediate sanctions rules. These are taxes on what are called excess benefit transactions and they're in section 4958 of the Internal Revenue Code. So this excise tax is imposed on excess benefit transactions between a 501c3 organization and a disqualified person. And we'll talk about the definition of uh, that in a moment. But the amount of the tax, uh, which is imposed primarily on this person who's a disqualified person is 25% of the excess benefit conferred by the tax exempt organization. And this amount is increased quite substantially to 200% if the transaction is not corrected, which generally means the excess benefit needs to be returned to the organization after the IRS has noticed that this has happened. There's another set of taxes that can be, that's sometimes called the trustee level tax that can be applied on organization managers, which would include the board, if they knowingly approve a transaction with a disqualified person, uh, knowing that an excess benefit is being conferred. The amount of that is 10% of the excess benefit. It's capped at $20,000 per transaction and is joint and several liability. Importantly, this tax is not imposed on the organization itself. It's either the disqualified person and or 
the manager or trustee level tax. So what is an excess benefit transaction? Basically, it's a transaction where an economic benefit is provided by the tax exempt organization to this magical category of disqualified person. And the economic benefit provided to the disqualified person exceeds the value of the consideration that disqualified person provided to the organization. So who are these people, disqualified persons we need to be concerned with? So it's anyone who over the past five years was in a position to exercise substantial influence over the affairs of the tax exempt organization as a whole. There is a group of de facto disqualified persons. This includes any voting board members, any voting trustees, it includes the CEO or president, whoever serves in that functional position, the COO and the CFO or treasurer. It also includes family members of all of these people and uh, entities that are controlled more than 35% by any group of these folks. And everyone else is determined based on facts and circumstances, whether they are considered to have substantial influence over the affairs of the organization. So what are types of excess benefit transactions? Here are the most common ones. Uh, if there has been a payment of more than reasonable compensation to a key executive who is a disqualified person, if there is a sale of services or property between a disqualified person and a tax exempt organization, and uh, the amount paid is not fair market value, uh, that gives rise to an excess benefit transaction as well. So how do you uh, sort of spot these transactions and mitigate risk with respect to these types of transactions, which can occur, you know, you have the trustee who as a company that provides services that would be perfect for the organization, but we want to make sure we haven't conferred an excess benefit transaction or conferred an excess benefit. So uh, if there is a safe harbor procedure that's in the treasury regulations that basically says you uh, create a rebuttable presumption, the organization creates a rebuttable presumption that no excess benefit transaction has occurred if it follows a particular procedure. The procedure is quite straightforward. First of all, the transaction needs to be approved in advance by disinterested members of the board or a committee, so people who have no conflict of interest with respect to the transaction. Uh, the board or committee needs to rely on comparability data in reviewing the transaction. This could be uh, you know, competitive bidding information in the context of a contract for services. It could be a third-party compensation study in the context of a compensation arrangement or even looking at Form 990 compensation data for comparable institutions. Uh, and the process needs to be documented in contemporaneous minutes, the approval process. Now, even though these are quite straightforward steps, there are often footfalls that occur in trying to establish this safe harbor. One is not having the documentation correct in the minutes. There are specific requirements for the minutes that are found in the treasury regulations. The wrong body reviews the comparability data and goes through the safe harbor procedure. This is another footfall. So 
the or the the body that has ultimate authority for approving the arrangement actually needs to go through the safe harbor procedure. So sometimes what happens is the compensation committee goes through this safe harbor procedure and then makes a recommendation to the board to approve and that has not satisfied the safe harbor procedure. If the board has the ultimate responsibility for approving, it needs to go through the safe harbor procedure to establish it. Another footfall, the approval doesn't occur in advance, the contract is entered into, and then folks say, oh, we need to review it. Too late, can't use the safe harbor procedure. And the last one is not considering all elements of compensation. So it's important, uh, for excess benefit transactions, particularly in the context of an executive compensation arrangement to include, it's not just cash compensation, base salary. You need to look at bonuses. You need to look at severance. You need to look at deferred compensation arrangement benefits. All of these things need to be considered in assessing reasonableness of compensation. The safe harbor procedure is very protective. As I said, it creates this rebuttable presumption uh, that, the, that no excess benefit transaction has occurred. And basically that means it shifts the burden of proof to the IRS to show based on its own data that there has been some element of unreasonable compensation um, afforded to a disqualified person. And so the last uh, excise tax we'll talk about is a relatively new one. It was enacted at the end of 2017, the same time those UBTI siloing rules were enacted. And this is a, an excise tax on excess executive compensation that's paid by tax-exempt employers. So this is under Section 4960 of the Internal Revenue Code, and it's a tax imposed at the corporate tax rate, so currently 21%, on remuneration in excess of a million dollars and on a group of payments called excess parachute payments. Uh, this tax applies to payments to what are called covered employees of a tax exempt organization. This group includes the five highest compensated employees for the, the year, plus anyone who ever was included as a covered employee in the past. So once you're a covered employee, you're always a covered employee. So how do you figure out if more than a million dollars in remuneration has been paid? You look at wages, you look at vested deferred compensation under section 457F of the Internal Revenue Code. Uh, an important exclusion for hospitals uh, and other healthcare providers is you don't look at compensation paid to a licensed medical or veterinary professional uh, for the performance of those medical or veterinary services. So those amounts are not included in the million dollar calculation. Some little uh, tidbits to be aware of with respect to this tax. You do need to look at remuneration paid to employees of a tax exempt organization by related entities. Uh, this essentially includes organizations that are in a control relationship with the tax exempt employer. It also includes uh, organizations that are in a 509A3 supporting or supported organization relationships. And keep in mind, it can include taxable entities as well. So if you have a large system that has employees that are cited within a tax exempt organization, they may be providing services to other organizations within the system those amounts of compensation get rolled together for purposes of determining whether the tax applies. 
And as I mentioned, the tax also applies to this group of payments called excess parachute payments. Those are essentially severance payments that equal or exceed three times an average base pay amount um, of compensation. So that's something to keep in mind as well with respect to this particular tax. Um, in terms of the interaction with the intermediate sanctions regime that I just mentioned, there really isn't an interaction other than both of these excise taxes can apply, but just because this 4960 tax is payable does not mean that it, there's necessarily an intermediate sanctions violation. So just because an organization pays more than a million dollars in compensation, that doesn't create an intermediate sanctions um, excise tax. There were very detailed regulations on this tax released uh, just a few months ago in January. And if you are ever dealing with uh, these rules, you definitely need to consult those regulations. There are a lot of twists and turns and, and various exceptions also that can be helpful and definitions in those regs too. So I think we have reached the end of our presentation. I will stop sharing my screen and we have three minutes to spare. So I don't know if we have any questions that there, there, there was one question that was a sort of a private question from an individual and I've responded to that. I don't see others, but if there are people online who wanna jump in now and ask questions, yeah. that would be great. Oops. I'm not seeing any. I don't see any either. I, I guess we must have been very clear. <laughs> well, well, thank you all for joining us today and good luck. And uh, uh, don't hesitate to reach out if you find that you have any questions after you've thought about the material a little bit further. Thanks so much. Thank you, everyone. Have a good afternoon. Great. Thank you. Bye-bye.